Okay. Um, hi, Mark. Um, if, if all of you haven't gotten some food, there's um, nuts and cheese and crackers, and there's even <laughs> um, lemon bars from Sam's or? Yeah. Yeah, from Sam's. The guy was unloading them. Just yeah. Like, got are, they, are they finally come back? Bob got really irritated. We, we had a couple of weeks ago when we were enjoying lemon bars, and he went back to get some more, and then went back again and again and again. They didn't have them. I think he got tough with them, and obviously yes. it, it had an effect. <laughs> if any of you don't have books, there's still a couple left. The books are $10. Um, I, think that's, I think that's it. Let's, let's start. Can you all turn, take out um, the Elliot? Remember when we did East Coker, if you've got it handy, you can pull it out. If you don't, don't, don't worry about it. Remember in the second section of Eliot's um, East Coker, that section that begins, what is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring? And just hold on that, uh, that idea. We, we've talked again and again about the importance of um, the still point and, and the amazing great variety of ways in which it presents itself. Either there's a still point or some analogy to it. And I remember mentioning it at that point that we would, we would find Elliot picking up that same thing when he did Little Gidding and that he would, what he did with it in Little Gidding was far beyond what he did with it in um, East Coker. East Coker, what is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring? Um, it's one more instance of something being there and not there, in time and out of time. But something's there. And it's so subtle, um, and if we're experiencing um, winter at all, and then suddenly have one of those spring moments, you know that we're aware of it and don't give it a thought and go on. It's, it's winter. We're probably grousing about the cold or the rain. But very often in midwinter, a day will appear when it's like we get a glimpse of spring. A heat comes in, and Eliot's saying that that is its own season. It's its own time. Because we can just explain it away as being a blur, a, you know, a, a foretaste of something to come. But it's one more instance of something that's there and not there. And, but in this instance, what he does here that he doesn't do in the earlier quartet is that he connects it with the motions of the soul, what's going on. The image of the, the sun um, flashing off the ice in a blinding glare. Um, and relates it to the same kind of motion in the soul that we're not aware of, in the same way that we're not sufficiently aware of what's going on in that moment, in that midwinter spring, or midwinter moment. Is that clear? And um, here, I, I don't want to go over it, I mean, I don't want to reread it, but remember some of the lines. The brief sun flames the ice on pond and ditches. Notice how he keeps bringing opposites together. 
I mean, the most obvious is winter and spring. Um, spring is a time of when things die. I mean, winter is, spring is a time when things come to life again. Um, cold, warm. The breeze sun flames the ice on pond and ditches in windless cold. It is the heart's heat reflecting on a wintry, a watery mirror, a glare that is blindness in the early afternoon. A glow more intense than blaze of branch or brazier stirs the dumb spirit. No wind but Pentecostal fire in the dark time of the year. The spirit is, is present to move one, if we can only be with it. How many of us see it? How many of us feel it? Sadly, too few. That's what poets give us. I've been saying that all along. Um, remember that Little Gidding is, um, is the place, again, that is and is not anymore. It was the place where this family, the Farrar family, met um, to devote their life to Christian prayer and the sacrament. Um, they were um, high church people. They were unlike the, the Puritans. They would have celebrated the Eucharist. That would have been a part of their daily practices. It was the small family community. Um, Charles I sought refuge there before he was, remember, captured and executed. So it's present, it's like Mink's axe tree, that tree. Remember that we, we talked about that when Mink came out of prison and he, and everything's radically changed, but he has that moment where he says, um, there's one thing they couldn't take away from him. And he remembers that tree, it's that beautiful line where he said, unaxed, unaxable, it will never be able to be taken away. So Little Gideon, like Bert Norton, has that same sort of presence in absence, and it's not being there. Um, so once again, Eliot is drawing us to a place that's beyond our senses, that's real, that should help us realize there's so much more going on in the world than we see with our senses. Um, and then remember, he ends that first section, if you came this way, taking any route, any season, it would always be the same. You would have to put off sense and notion you are not here to verify, instruct yourself, or inform. Those are the preoccupations of our life. No, teachers, doctors, lawyers, um, people who think, <laughs> teachers who think they have so much to inform that we're here to teach or instruct or, you know, that um, we have something to offer other people, listen, <laughs> saying no, 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 um, to all of that. Instruct yourself or inform curiosity or carry report. Oh, God. You are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. And prayer is more than an order of words. We all know that because there are times when we can pray and come away from prayer feeling as if we haven't completely given ourselves in some way. Prayer is more than the order of words, the conscious occupation of the praying mind, or the sound of the voice praying. And what the dead had no speech for, when living, they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. Here, the intersection of the timeless moment is England and nowhere, never and always. Can we step into those moments? Can we get outside of ourselves enough? Remember, the dead had no speech for. Um, I mean, obviously, one of the dead has to be Christ. Yeah? I mean, are we communicating with the dead, the saints? If we were listening to the dead, if we had ears for the dead, 
we'd probably be hearing more than the people who are living would have to tell us. Remember, when we did the Odyssey, there was no way Odysseus could get home without visiting the land of the dead. There was no way he would know what he lived his life for without knowing what he would be willing to die for, what the dead would have to tell him. And you know that when he went there, he looked, I mean, there was a lot to learn. He, um, um, he learned about the betrayals of um, Agamemnon's wife, and the failures of men. Remember all the queens. I mean, all the queens forgot their husbands. Um, there's a wisdom to take back from the dead because they see everything that wasn't done here in our world. So, so that's where we were. Um, I'm going to read this. I'm going to make one comment. And I'm going to read it and leave it. I'm not going to comment it at all. I'm just going to let it settle on you guys. The, section, the second section is divided into two parts. The first part are these short sta um, um, stanzas that unfold by couplets, okay? Rhyming couplets, pairs of lines. All of them take the four basic elements, air, fire, earth, water, and show that they all come to dust, that all things go to dust. Once again, we're back at the beginning of Ash Wednesday and from dust we came to dust we go. And then it's followed with a long description of um, Eliot um, pacing London during the um, time when Germany was sending over bombers and bombing London. And, and two things to just be aware of. Um, I don't want to go into this in detail. Two things to be aware of. One is, notice how the, the, the phrase of the doves, the flickering tongues, can refer both to the German planes, the, the firing they would have done, the shooting, and the bombs that they would have dropped, and also the Holy Spirit. And remember, we've talked about this, that, that very often there's a grace offered humans in the violence that takes place in the world if they will see it. That's one. The other is, Eliot meets somebody. Um, there are two things to keep in mind. Remember when the disciples were walking on the road to Emmaus and suddenly somebody appeared to them. And also remember that um, Dante was Eliot's um, great mentor, um, that Dante is with him everywhere. Um, it, we, we can't name this person for sure. My own sense is there's something of Dante in this man and there may be something of Ezra Pound who was a tremendous influence for Eliot and helped him not only write the poetry he did, but shared the same view that both Eliot and Pound believed that the most important thing for the poets then was to clean up the language. Because very often you know poets tend to get very sentimental and dishonest. The struggle of finding words that get to the truth, to, that get to the incarnation, is the task for saints. I mean, I really believe that when poets do that, they belong in the class with the other, the other saints. So just keep those two things in your mind as we read this, and, and I'll let it go at that. And remember always, too, that so much of what the quartets is about is this still point and the importance of our trying to live our lives close to it with the understanding that when we do, some kind of purification takes place within ourselves. We get closer to Christ, stand more with him, not before, not after, in eternity with God. <clears throat> it's a refining fire. 
So, so many of these images are going to that, okay? <coughs> Second section. Ash on an old man's sleeve is all the ash the burnt roses leave. Dust in the air suspended marks the place where a story ended. Dust in breathe was a house, the wall, the wainscot, and the mouse. The death of hope and despair, this is the death of air. There are flood and drought over the eyes and in the mouth, dead water and dead sand contending for the upper hand. The parched, eviscerate soil gapes at the vanity of toil, laughs without mirth. This is the death of earth. Water and fire succeed the town, the pasture and the weed. Water and fire deride the sacrifice that we denied. Trusting everybody will know what that sacrifice is. Water and fire shall rot the marred foundations we forgot of sanctuary and choir. This is the death of water and fire. Remember, both of those, water and fire, are pure, purifying. Baptism, the fire of the Holy Spirit. In the uncertain hour before the morning, near the ending of interminable night, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with a flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing, while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin over the asphalt where no other sound was, between three districts whence the smoke arose, I met one walking, loitering and hurried, as if blown towards me like the metal leaves before the urban dawn, wind um, unresisting. You have to picture somebody walking at nighttime in London during or before or after a bombing. Um, the metal leaves, the shrapnel, the, you know, all the stuff that was, um, the flak and stuff that, that was produced by the explosions. As I f and as I fixed upon the downturned face, that pointed <clears throat> scrutiny with which we challenged the first met stranger in the waning dusk, I caught the sudden look of some dead master whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many. In the brown-baked features, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, both intimate and unidentifiable. Remember here that, I mean, he takes on a double part, and this is a compound vote. Let me just, or a, a person, go back to what we've been talking about. If we take the Eucharist within us, if we receive the Eucharist, and the city and the kingdom of God is within us and that we're a part of it, we can't just see ourselves in terms of walking from here to there, getting from the, this room to our car, from the car here. Before, after, nowhere and everywhere, there, in, in whatever sense we carry him with us, it's never sufficient to say we're on the way to the car. In terms of our physical world, that's true. But in terms of our presence in God's kingdom, something more is needed. So Eliot's always trying to take us to that, I think it's called, the, um, what's it called, the apophatic, the, the, the knowledge of things we can't know except only indirectly through the things that we do. Um, we all, every one of us, carries more in ourselves than who we are. I hope that's, every one of us carries, hopefully, Christ. Faulkner now, for good or bad, <laughs> with all the twisted sentences. Melville, Shakespeare, Dante. We, we are, there's, it's like a community of people present in us. It's closer to the mystical body of Christ. There's more in us than just ourselves. 
making of the self that we are. Okay, so this shouldn't be a, you know, too perplexing. In the brown baked features, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, both intimate and unidentifiable. So I assumed a double part and cried and heard another's voice cry, what, are you here? Although we were not, although we were not, I was still the same, knowing myself, yet being someone other, and he a face still forming, yet the words sufficed to compel the recognition they preceded. And so, compliant to the common wind, too strange to each other for misunderstanding, <laughs> wonderful line, in Concord at this intersection time of meeting nowhere, no before and after, we trod the pavement in a dead patrol. I mean, the paradoxes and the mysteries in just those few lines, I hope, are... <laughs> if only most of us could enter into those mysteries more often than we do, instead of going around thinking we have all the answers and we know everything and everything's settled. Is it clear what a mysterious thing that is taking place right now? No before, no after. Um, too strange to each other for misunderstanding. Um, we trod the pavement in a dead patrol. I said, the wonder that I feel is easy, yet ease is cause of wonder. Therefore speak. I may not comprehend, may not remember. And he, I'm not eager to rehearse my thought and theory, which you have forgotten. These things have served their purpose, let them be. So with your own, and pray they be forgiven by others as I pray you to forgive both bad and good. How much that echoes that, that line, you are here to kneel where prayer has been valid. Um, how much of what we should do with anybody we meet at any point of our life um, is to ask for pardon and hopefully receive a pardon ourselves. That's the spirit in which I think it's suggested here we should carry on more of our lives. Last season's fruit is eaten, and the fulfilled beast shall kick the empty pail, for last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice. Can we find the right words for any appropriate moment? Particularly if that moment is, is conceived in the terms in which I've been talking about. There's a, mis there's a mystery to it. Yes? Is this, am I, is everybody following? Because we're dealing with paradoxes and mysteries and we all okay? Sort of? Not even close. Not even close? <laughs> but as the passage now presents no hindrance to the spirit unappeased and peregrine, between two worlds become much like each other. So I find words I never thought to speak in streets I never thought I should revisit when I left my body on a distant shore. So much like Dante with Virgil in the Commedia. Since our concern was speech and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe, by the way, that's coined from an exchange between Eliot and Pound. Both of them saw this as one of the principal um, commitments, um, aims of their poetry. That after the Romantics and the Victorians, the, that the, the analogy between words and the word had gotten lost. So the most important thing was to, cl to clean up what poets were doing with language, to take language back to its source and its root, so that it could serve the incarnation in the world. 
Since our concern with speech and speech impelled us to purify the dialect of the tribe and urge the mind to aftersight and foresight, let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shallow shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder as we age. Second, the conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse and last the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done. Now just stop. Um, take enchantment away, no promises. The, the bitter tasteness, I'm reminded of the, of the Easter, the Paschal meal, the bitter roots, remember, that is the prelude to the Easter. The bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit and body and soul begin. Second, the conscious impotence of rage. That's pointless too. We look around at the world and rage at what we see happening. Take all of that away, what do we have for Eliot? What's left? Last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. This is the line that, that Suzanne quoted. I mean, she recalled a year ago, if you remember. I don't remember. Maybe it was Wintersdale, I don't remember. But she quoted it almost verbatim. That point you reach in your life where you look back on your life ashamed when you realize that so much of what you did, you did thinking it was good, only to discover later that it wasn't quite as good as you thought it was. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others harm, which once you took for exercise of virtue. And fools approval stings and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds unless restored by that refining fire where you must move in measure like a dancer. The day was breaking in the disfigured street. He left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. So this walk takes place when London's being bombarded. Everybody's dying. And um, he, he has this encounter with the ghost of a spirit and everything about it goes to this point that it's only if we get rid of everything and give ourselves to this refining spirit um, that I think we can find ourselves. The third section will begin, there are three conditions which often look alike and then we'll go into them, but we'll pick that up next week, okay? Okay. Um, back to, back to last week because um, because we forgot the recorders, we got off to a, um, a shaky start because I, um, I didn't want to lose what we were doing for the whoever would go back and listen to the tapes. I want to go back. I want to go back. Yeah, I want to go back um, and just quickly go over some of the things that I left out at the beginning of last week. Very quickly, some personal things to think about um, when you think about C.S. Lewis. He was born in 1898, died in 63, so somewhat of a contemporary of us. Um, he was born in, in Belf Belfast and um, baptized into the Irish National Church. He had a dog named Jaxi when he was young. The dog died, and after the dog died, he insisted that everybody call. This is interesting, a way of keeping, talking about time in and out of time of something being there and not. 
The Dodge Dead, his way of keeping it alive was ask people to call him Jack. So forever afterwards, everybody knew, who was, knew him as Jack. Um, he grew up as a young boy reading um, fantasy stories a lot, and he loved the northern myths. Um, and if you know anything about the northern myths, you, you know that um, there is this atmosphere of, of dread and a longing, um, heroic um, deeds and longing and mystery. Um, but this sense of dread and a joy at coming to something. So as a young boy, he, he loved those stories. And as he matured as a man, it was one of the principles that, that defined his life, I think. At age 15, he turned agnostic. And when he talked about that turn in his life, he said he became angry at God um, for not existing. <laughs> what a wonderful, what a wonderful expression. That means something in him refuses to believe that he doesn't exist. You know, there's a part of him that's angry at him because he can't believe him anymore and he wants to. So even in that, there's this secret longing for something. Um, he served in the World War and he was a friend with this um, young man, I think his name was Patty Moore. And both of them in combat promised to take care of their families if either one of them um, didn't survive the war. Patty was killed. When Lewis came back, he personally took on the care of Patty's mother. Um, and strange things are written about her. Jane Moore, um, some people look at her as if she was a demanding person that, that kept Lewis on his toes doing chores and things like that. Um, some works have come out suggesting that there may have been a sexual relationship between them, that they may, may have been intimate. And it looks to me like there was more and more evidence of that. People talked with her daughter, and she seems to think that, that Lewis and this woman were intimate, even though she was, I don't know, 30 or 40 years older than he was. Um, 20 years, I can't remember what it was. Um, he, um, I read about that, but she was highly intelligent. <laughs> and that's why their minds met. I don't know about their bodies, but their minds met. Yeah, right. <laughs> and that's what, that's what yeah. put them together, was yeah. their minds. Yeah. Um, he went to Oxford, and, and during his time there, um, he became close friends with Christians who had a, a strong influence in his conversion. He converted to theism in 1929, and a few, le few years later, he converted back to Christianity and, and became an Anglican. To, I, um, Neville Coghill, I think, was one of his friends there. Coghill went on to write, um, I think it's the same person who did the translation of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which is a wonderful translation. It's just delightful. Um, and um, Tolkien. And Tolkien was um, personally disappointed when Lewis did convert and he didn't convert to Catholicism. Um, a number of those men, Coghill, um, Tolkien, Charles Williams, um, Owen Barfield, I can't remember the whole list, a number of men like that, great intellectuals, not all of them Christian. I don't think Barfield was. I may be wrong in that. I, I don't think he was. But a, a group of men seriously committed to academic life and aware of the, the cultural problems of the time formed this group called the Inklings. And they critiqued, they would read papers, they would meet, I think in Lewis's room weekly or bi-weekly, and 
read their papers. So they were aware of what each of them was doing and could critique their works. So they learned a lot from each other. Charles Williams wrote a number of novels, um, All Hallows' Eve, uh, I can't. Place of the Lion. I can't remember. Um, one of the basic principles of William's thought was this notion of co-inherence, that um, if a person lived God, Christ, completely in his life, he would be willing to give his life to others freely. Um, he, that Christ would co-inherit in him, and that person would share that co-inherence with another um, for whom he would give a life. And that principle of coherence worked across time. Um, that somebody giving their life now could actually do something for a person who lived 100 years ago. Very close to Dante. I think Williams probably got that notion from Dante because those of you who have done Dante remember that in the Paradiso we learn that God's not, God's not bound by time. He lives in an eternal present. So there's no way for him not to be able to go back in what is a past to us because it's not a past to him. And, and to redeem people, to help redeem people in the past. Um, in the 1950s, he, um, he met Joy David, Davidman and um, carried on a correspondence with her. She was, she was raised Jewish, she, raised, um, she was raised Jewish and converted. The man that she married um, converted also. But at some point, they had marital difficulties that led to their separation. I, th I think he had some drinking problems. But I think even more seriously, he, um, he got involved in some marginal kind of spiritual groups, and it led to a breakup between them. Um, she got very close to C.S. Lewis, I think fell in love with him, and moved to England. And then the two of them married um, um, in a civil wedding. And then a couple of years later, they they were married in the church, and lots of Lewis's friends were disturbed at that because she was divorced. So it, um, I think it caused some ripples in some of his friendships. She was a really bright woman, a very intelligent woman, and, and everybody said that um, in some way she was a perfect match because she could, she could, she could carry on in her life at his, le his, at his intellectual level. So, but, um, so they were very close. Um, I, I forgot to bring it tonight. He has this wonderful passage, and he wrote a. He, I don't think it's in "Surprised by Joy" is his autobiography, but he wrote this book when when um, Joy Davidman um, went into cancer and then shortly died afterwards. He wrote this book called "Grief Observed," where he describes his response to her death. I, I'm not sure where that. It's been too long since I've read them, but he has this wonderful passage where he says, "She was." Um, she was my wife, my daughter, my mother, my tutor, my teacher, my soulmate. There was no, I mean, most people, would, most men, I think, would be outraged at the thought that somebody would be a mother. I mean, every once in a while, I was, there was a friend here at the church who, I, we were in the, in the office, and Suzanne was saying something, and, and he walked away, and he said, I don't need another mother, and I mean, you know, I can't remember what was said, but, and I can hear myself saying that. To, you know, he said openly, I mean, with gratitude, she was my daughter, she was my mother, she was my wife, um, a tutor, a student. It, it, it was a wonderful way of saying that every aspect of their relationship opened up together so that they could go there together, whatever it is, and grow from it.
So um, it changed his life, I think. And interestingly, um, he writes till we have faces in which the central character is a woman late in his life at this time. So till we have faces comes out of that period. Um, one last thing before we look at the book. Just remember, um, at the same time that the Inklings were formed and, and doing this work together as this small little community, a group was forming in America in the South called the Fugitives. Um, um, Alan, John Crow Ransom, Donald Davidson, Alan Tate are the major figures. John Crow Ransom was one of the best teachers in the 20th century. And the writings he did was extraordinary. Alan Tate. Alan Tate, by the way, was the only one of the group that went on um, to convert to Catholicism. Most of them were Protestants. Um, and Tate's critical writings, there have been times when it, he's put me to tears. I mean, I, I read this man's writing and I, he's, I think he's one of the finest critics of the 20th century. And there's a personal note in his criticism that I don't find in any other man. He's, he's just an extraordinary figure. Anyway, they were writing. They were writing poetry, novels, criticism. So here's, here's the thing that I want to leave you with. If you go back to the literature of the 19th century, you'll find almost nothing dealing explicitly with Christianity. Nothing. Go back to um, Fielding or Defoe or um, pick, go as far ahead as Jane Austen in, in Jane Austen's novels. If any of you have read Jane Austen's novels, you know that God doesn't appear anywhere. She doesn't deal with the sacred at all. George Eliot, Trollope deals with um, ecclesiastical affairs, affairs, but always in a way that's a parody. It's a comic treatment of an ecclesi ecclesiastical Protestant world. Um, um, George Eliot is post-Christian. She's not a Christian. She doesn't believe in Christianity. Um, Thackeray, same. One of the few times that I can remember anything being said about religion was um, embarrassing. In Charles Dickens' um, Tale of Two Cities, there's a character in that, in that novel whose name, I've, Gardner, I can't remember who his name was, who used to go around describing his wife flopping down at prayers. That was his repeated, that was one of those Dickensian phrases, flopping at prayer. It was a ridicule because um, it was embarrassing. You don't ever get images of anybody in a religious situation being taken seriously. I mean, that's part of, you know, we've talked about this, the crisis of the 19th century. We talked about this really explicitly when we did Melville. Melville and Hawthorne are American, and they're very different from the British counterparts in dealing explicitly with religious things. Ishmael. Call me Ishmael. We're in a biblical world. In conflict, but it's, um, he's, he's dealing with it. That, that's one of the major books of the 19th century. Hawthorne's um, Scarlet Letter is explicitly religious, dealing with an adultery in a Puritan community. It's in America that we're dealing with that, and you know that Faulkner picks that up with Go Down Moses. So in the 19th century, there's virtually no important novelist dealing explicitly with religious litter. That carries over into the 20th century. The major writers, Henry James, Conrad, Virginia Woolf, Joyce deals with it, but at a distance. Nobody does. And in the midst of this cultural crisis where there's this turn towards the secular, secularism of the world, you've got the Inklings in England and you've got the fugitives in America. And both groups are answering 
the crisis. All of them are dealing explicitly with religious matters. So it's, a, it's pretty amazing what these two small groups did. Um, C.S. Lewis, Charles Williams, Dorothy Sayers came in and out of that group often if you know her work. And then in America, um, John Co. Ransom, Tate, Donald Davidson, people like that. Um, so the writing that we've been dealing with for, you know, since we began Faulkner and Melville has all been pointed towards the modern world and they're the only few writers who are dealing explicitly with, or the major ones at that time. Others have um, followed them, um, but that's where we are here. Um, so these, these people really do stand apart in answering what all of them understand to be the crisis of modernity, what we've been dealing with since we started Melville. Let me stop. I want to I turn to the book, but before we do, any comments or thoughts about the cultural background or C.S. Lewis? <coughs> All of these people are really, and it's interesting to think about it. Stop and think about this for a minute. C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, Charles Williams. Um, if you go back to the, leave the 19th century out for a minute. They are, they are probably the greatest writers of the 20th century. And they're, they're, they're different in the sense that something about their faith led them to a writing that set them apart from all the other great writers of the period. It's extraordinary. That's no accident. You know, I, 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 I've kept saying that, you know, struggling to reach the incarnation or to get to it in literature is the occupation of a saint. To try to do that with words. <laughs> Look at all the rest of the writers who are writing what they write. How many of them get close? So that's where we are. And, and to our good fortune or grace, we're ending this work with two and faces, which is, an, to me, an extraordinary, extraordinary book. So, any comments or responses? Or okay, something's wrong here. You guys are too quiet tonight. Should have brought another bottle of wine, I guess, or something. Okay. Very quick review. I'm, I'm not going to take any time with this. I, want to, I really want to get to this middle section of the book. Last week, we saw that um, the book is written by this woman whose name is Oriwell, and she's writing the book as a complaint against the gods. It's a legal case. She has a charge against the gods. It's going to end up in a court setting at the end if you're not there. Um, um, it, it's pointed towards a court setting. She has a complaint against the gods because she feels she's been unjustly treated. So it's related to this larger question that we hear about from the time of Job. Why are the gods unjust? Why do they favor certain people and not others? In Oriole's case, she, re she reverses that. Um, why, did, why did the gods take Psyche from me and do this horrible thing? Um, because it has all the appearances of injustice. Um, so she, she accuses the gods of being awful things. And it's clear from the outset that she's writing this book to a Greek. 
And if you've been following it, you know that means to a rational mind, i.e. the modern mind. Because you know that the modern mind is rationalist and makes no place for gods. So in some sense, Lewis is speaking directly to our time. He, he, he's included in that class of what I've been calling prophetic writers. Um, he's, he's writing largely to an intellectual audience who will not make a place for this. This is Oriol appealing to that mind. So in that sense, even though, even though it's set back in ancient days, and it's, it has to do with the, you know, the Cupid Psyche myth, it's very modern. It, it's, it's appealing to our reason to defend, to take her side with her on the basis of reason, okay? If we're left with reason alone. Um, it's very much about the plight of a woman. I mean, I, 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 it seems to me it's impossible to pick up that book and, and read 20 pages and not feel it. She's a woman, she's out of place, she's in a man's world, she is subject to the terrors and um, power dynamics of a, of a male world. Her father's the king. Um, we get hints of all of the struggles that he's involved in and his abuses of power. And more than that, how much he, I, my reading, how much he's encouraged to do that because he has the support of the gods. The divine right of kings. You know, she, she often through the book later when she has to defend herself, she'll, she says, We're in, I'm not going to let this happen because it's an offense against our royal, our divine blood. Their blood goes back to the gods, to the, to the divine rights. Um, so it's a power that is actually buttressed by some sense of a royal lineage that, that goes back to kings and even gods beyond them. Um, the city, we've talked about the city over and over again, it's set apart, and it's interesting in this book that the city is divided from the house of Unga by that stream. We know that streams are always important. The city in one sense is an image of a secular world attempting to be self-sufficient. We've talked about the role of the city going back to um, Enoch in the Bible. The city comes into existence in an effort to live without God. Um, Unga's on the other side of the river. Um, Oriol has, n has nothing good about, to say about Unga, always. She's horrified because that world represents a world of sacrifices, blood. She calls it a, the reeking of holiness, the smell of it. it. It offends her everywhere. So offset against the city is this world of holiness and devouring. We'll come to that, but um, sh she's aware that People are devoured. There's sacrifice. There's blood on the floor and the smell of, smell of blood. Um, later we'll talk about this because um, we believe in a Eucharist. We're actually, we're, we devour Christ. So I don't want to get to this right now, but just hold that as a thought in your mind because everything about that offends her. Um, the education of Oriol and everybody else. The fox is brought into the kingdom to educate um, what the king supposes will be his male heir. When he doesn't get a male heir, fox is still there and he's left to educate them. That's going to get a little bit more complicated here because you know after sacrifice, after um, um, Psyche is sacrificed, um, Bardia will become her teacher. So the two teachers of Oriol, and I don't, this is really important, the two teachers of Oriol are Bardia and the fox. Um, 
It's interesting, look, you know, we've, I've mentioned Plato's Republic often in the course, but Plato said that the basis of education for every single human being should be the mind and the body, that you learn to develop the intellect, but you also learn gymnastics. If you, if you skew things one way or the other, you're going to produce a nerd or um, a jock. And I, there's got to be a better word for that, but... <laughs> but you know the contrast I'm pulling. That, that, that is, you're either going to produce somebody who's going to be too effeminate, he won't be able to defend himself, or a brute. The, 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 the prospect of, of educating to try to make, to try to help a human being become a complete human being requires both things. Music, gymnasium. The learning of the mind to help the mind become good and the developing the body. Whenever that gets skewed, something in the hu human person suffers, gets lost. Her two teachers are the Fox and Barty. That's not an accident. The importance of beauty. Um, Oriol is aware of beauty early on, and she discovers that she's ugly. So she's a girl growing up in a male world who has no place because she can't, she can't attract men the way other people. She learns to be, she becomes terribly sensitive, self-conscious about her looks, and you know eventually she's going to cover her face. She'll put on a veil. Um, and sickness. Um, it's interesting that in almost every case that I can recall where somebody becomes sick, it's associated with um, an ordeal. But sickness isn't just a physical thing, it's, it's, a, it's a sign that, that somebody's undergoing some kind of struggle. Um, that's particularly true of Psyche and Oriole when they get sick. Okay. Um, Last week, when I began, I tried to avoid mentioning what I think is the central theme of the book because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, for those of you who hadn't gotten on, I didn't want to spoil things, but now I can be upfront about it. The central action, you know, we've talked about this term, action. The plot is an imitation of an action. What is this action of the whole book? If I were to define the action of the whole book, I'd say it's a conflict between the possessive love that's natural to the human person in a fall, the conflict between that love and um, what um, Lewis would have called the anima naturalite Christiana, um, the, the, the natural image of, of Christ in the soul. If every one of us was created in the image of God, that means, and Christ is the word, that means at the center of every human person is this anima naturalite Christiana, the naturally Christian soul, the naturally Christian soul. So even though there is this possessive love at the heart of every human being, the tendency of every human being to say, it's mine, it's mine. I did this, it's mine is this image of Christ that is absolutely self-giving and self-sacrificing. That's the central tension of the story, I would say. And I think, I think you're probably all aware of it. You know that for two-thirds of the novel, there's almost nothing Oriole does that doesn't use her reason to justify something in her that she doesn't completely understand. 
what she's what she doesn't understand is how possessive she is in the way that she loves. In her mind, she loves um, Psyche. It's just a love. She loves her. There's no question about her. Everything everything about Psyche makes her happy. When she loses her, she feels like something that is hers is being taken from her. We we saw that the the first section ends. You remember sections or chapter seven or eight. When she goes into the tower room to visit with Psyche, first she first she gets angry at her. That's a wasp. You have a wasp. There is a wasp on your shirt. Then she um, then she feels sorry for herself, and then she blames her. Um, so that we I don't want to go back to that scene, but it's interesting to look at because every one of her responses comes from this sense that that um, something's being taken from her. And she even gets to the point where she's angry at Psyche because she feels Psyche doesn't love her. So she blames her as if she doesn't love her the way she should. So what, what C.S. Lewis is showing us for two-thirds of the book is the way in which this, this possessive love shows itself without being aware of itself. She's not aware that she, anything she's doing is wrong. Um, in her mind, she loves her sister and what she's doing is perfectly natural. It's one of the great ironies of the book. Um, so this conflict between this possessive love, this, this loving without realizing that it's for oneself as over against the image of Christ, this other, this other aspect of the soul. And I want to take a second here because remember we've talked about Plato's, Plato's image of the soul, reason or rationality, and what Plato would have called spiritedness, primus and the appetites. Remember, we've talked about this a lot. And last week, I, I put this out on the board. Remember, in, the, in the Plato's work called the Phaedo, he gives an image of a charioteer uh, with two horses, a black horse and a white horse. For Plato, the black horse was, the, was an image of the appetites, the, the, the wanting something for oneself. I want this cake. I want this food. I want this beautiful woman. And the white horse, which was desires, these two parts of the soul are repetitive, they're desire, but it's directed towards higher things, truth, nobility, love, honor, the higher aspects of the soul. Spiritedness, Plato said that reason, the charioteer, governs the black horse by means of the white horse, the spiritedness. If you take that that middle element away, so that reason is left with the appetites, there's no way for there's no way for the soul to get a hold of itself. I think I gave the example. If you put a young couple in a, in, did I give it of watching a movie and it's a romantic movie and enough hasn't been done to develop the middle part, so that reason is left with the appetites, what would happen? And there's just I hope everybody sees there's no contest, there's no struggle. I mean, there's no there's Reason by itself cannot control the appetites. Let me read this from C.S. Lewis. This is Lewis again. In Abolition of Man, he's taking on these educators who are doing everything they can to debunk emotions because they say emotions are sentimental, they're foolish. They're intellectuals. In some sense, they're representative of the modern world that we've been talking about for the last year. And he says this, this is the end of the first section on abolition of man. In battle, it's not syllogisms that will keep 
the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of the bombardment. The crudest sentimentalism, such as these people make fun of, um, about a flag or a country or a regiment will be of more use. We were told it a long time ago by Plato, as the king covers by, as the king governs by his executive, so reason in man must rule the mere appetites by means of the spirited element. Is everybody clear here? Um, the head rules the belly through the chest, call it the heart. The seat, as Alanis tells us, of magnanimity. I remember when, I don't know if you, all of you were present when Father John gave his talk a year ago, when he spent a lot of time talking about magnanimity, the largeness of heart that he was finding everywhere in the Old Testament, in the book of Ruth and other. This largeness of heart to, to be able to feel for another in the right way. Um, of magnanimity, of emotions organized by train habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. I've been saying forever that the modern world tends to put man in his intellect, in abstractions, at the expense of his heart. The modern world, by virtue of the education that we receive, tends to make us thinkers. We live in our heads. Um, it may even be said that by this middle element that man is man, for by his intellect he's more spirit, more angelic, like an angel, and by his appetite he's animal. We're supposed to bring those two together. The operation of these educational books is to produce what may be called men without chests. That's what we're producing today. Men and women without hearts. So one of the fundamental questions, challenges to the modern mind is how do we help kids develop good hearts, the right kind of emotion, to help give them a strength when they need it. This gives them the chance, and they, they um, it's an outrage to say that they should be commonly spoke of, these people who are taking this position, as intellectuals. This gives them the chance to say that he who attacks them attacks intelligence. It's not so. They are not distinguished from other men by any unusual skill in finding truth or any virginal ardor to pursue her. Indeed, it would be strange if they were. A persevering devotion to truth, a nice sense of intellectual honor, cannot be long maintained without the aid of a sentiment that these ed educators make fun of all the time. It's not through excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out. That's the mark of the modern intellectual. Their heads are no bigger than the ordinary. It's the atrophy of the chest beneath that makes them seem so. Is that clear? Um, look at Flannery O'Connor. Remember that shrunken figure? The great challenge facing us is Christ said, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. How do we help people love? To, to help quiet the mind when the mind seems to govern so much. Because you know how, how quick we are to how quick we are to argue and how quick our arguments take the form of abstractions. They don't go to concrete realities. They're abstractions. They're not even related. Um, find somebody who can take abstractions into concrete realities and, and work with them. You've got another kind of man. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we can, this is the crucial, this is how he ends the chapter. 
we continue to clamor for those very qualities we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, rem we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chest and expect them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We <coughs> castrate and bid the gelding, geldings be fruitful. We take away the very thing we need. How do we help people love? Okay, you're gonna want me, you're gonna wanna send me out on this. Read more poetry, I'm sorry. To, <laughs> sorry for that. I hope you know there's a serious note behind that for me, from my perspective. What have we been doing together if it hasn't been to open our hearts for all these things we've been experiencing? Well, doesn't this have some relationship, though, with regard of, I mean, how primitive or non-primitive we are with in, in the place in the world that we look at, basically, I mean, with, with regard to achieving those things? I mean, if you have... If you only can only if you get to struggle every day for just to live, I mean to find food and the like. I mean, I just don't think you have any can have any spirit. I mean, it's I mean you just your your goal is hey how do I get the next animal or the next the next meal to to feed myself my family and and the like. I mean. Uh, I, you know, I, we can do it in the civilized world better than you can do it in a in a non-civilized. I guess I'm, I'm, if I were speaking for Lewis, and I'm a little bit wary of doing that, but I'd say, if our only concern were self-preservation, then we've already reduced ourselves to an animal, a level of animals anyway. That well, as human beings, you know. if we're con by the way, this is one of Plato's great. I mean, Aristotle's great arguments. You know, mm -hmm. we went through this when we were doing Aristotle that. Um, Say it. The individual, the tribe. Yeah, that that what raises. Remember that the two extremes that we want to avoid is either um, the empire or the tribe. Yeah. Um, that what happens at that moment when um, what he calls the um, the um, the distribution of labor when we begin to make exchanges so that we're not reduced to a level of necessity. Right. That 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 isn't our only concern. When that moment happens an element of freedom is introduced into our lives. And with that freedom, we can read. And for him, it meant to philosophize. Um, he should have said, and to read the poets. But, um, <laughs> but it's at that moment that we, that we can begin to grow into who we are as humans and what makes us different from the animals or, or, or creatures who live at a level of self-preservation. This is, I, I want to, there's a, a larger concern. I just want to get, I want to get back to the book. Um, Oriol's got two teachers. And we saw that if we're looking at this in terms of this image, and it's an important one, because remember, she learns how to fight. Fox teaches, I mean, Bardia teaches her how to fight. And, and in some ways, she becomes an extraordinary queen. She does things her father never could have done. With these two teachers, she's taught how to think and she, she's taught how to fight. When you take the Plato's image of the soul, Lewis just gave it again, because it's one he know it's one I think he lives by. When you take it and apply it to this first topic, which is one of the great, the great governing theme of our work, 
the possession of the soul against the image of Christ, is it any longer adequate to look at this in terms of spiritedness? I'd say no, because I think Lewis is changing this. What he's showing us is that at the center of the soul, there is this capacity for fighting, spirited, but there's also a capacity for self-denial. What this book, and if, this, if, if Lewis is right, that it's by means of this that we, we are humans, then all of us are confronting this. We have got to learn to deal with the possessiveness in the human soul and do it in a spirit of Christ. That, I'd say that's the central action of this book. Everything that Oriole does until the end of the book is to justify herself, to cover herself up, to make excuses without seeing that what governs her is a possessive love. Her attitude towards Psyche can be reduced to saying, she's mine. After, after she comes back, after the castle collapses, she goes back, do you remember, she puts everything in order, and she says, I want to return it, and she uses that word, it's mine. She's mine. She says that a number of times in the book. So at the center of this book is this tendency of the, in the human person to say, it's mine. And if you know anything about this inkling group, you know at the center of the, the fellowship and the rings is who? Gollum. And what does he do? That, I mean, he's a, he's a perfect, Gollum is an image, if we're taking Dante as our, you know, the, the, the allegory, when we go into hell, we're seeing images of ourselves. I can't watch Tolkien without seeing, Gollum is an image of that grotesque thing in the center of every one of our souls that says, don't take that away from me, it's mine. It's mine. Why do they want that power of the ring? Because with that power, they can have anything they want, infinitely. So what Lewis is showing us in Oriole is something universal. It's this possessiveness at the center of the soul. Now, just quickly to go back, to, to put this in a context, some of the important mythic images to keep in mind when we look at Oriole, keep, keep in mind the Persephone myth. Persephone was the, um, the beautiful creature produced by Zeus and Demeter. She's an image of something life-giving and feminine, life-giving. But she's taken by Hades, the god of the underworld, and taken there and imprisoned. And because of, um, I can't remember what, um, something happened to, to make an arrangement. God bless, God, I should. And she's allowed to go free for three Paul months. Ran, Paul Grant says eating the seeds. And she's no, who went down? It, was, it wasn't, it's not Orpheus, Doc. It's um, Hercules, the North, but it's. An arrangement was made, a, a, a deal struck so that she could be freed to come up. So she's an image of everything life-bearing in the world, but she has to go into the darkness. So when, when, the, when the ancient spring rites were held, it was in celebration of her, because she was the image of everything that, that was thought to be divine that brought life back to people so that they could eat and survive. Just keep that in mind. But I want to go back to some other things that we've been reading um, to show you its presence in our, in our work. If you go back to Homer, remember the two greatest things that Odysseus had to confront on his journeys in order to get home were Calypso and Circe. He was with Calypso for, of the nine and a half years that he's away, he's under her control for eight of them. He's under Circe's control for nine. Both of them have power over because of their beauty and the power that that has over a man. How attractive they are to him. So there's an element of possessiveness. In fact, remember when the gods came, they didn't want to let go of him. The word Calypso, 
to conceal, to make him hers. So early on, Odysseus has to learn to deal with that quality before he can get home to Penelope, because he's going to be facing it there. He will be under the control of a woman. The beauty that, and the power that that beauty gives over, how attracted a man is to that beauty. And remember, Christ is the ultimate image of beauty. That what, what that awakens in a person is desire. Looking at beauty, desires are awakened. Who was it who said, all sin is the result of love? Loving the wrong thing too much or loving the right thing? No, loving the wrong thing or loving the right thing too much. Yep. He said that. Yeah, Augustine said it and then Thomas, St. Thomas said it too. Dante says okay, it in the community. Okay, St. Thomas, that's where I got yeah, it then. Yeah. Loving the wrong thing too much. Yeah, the great, we've been saying this forever, the, the great struggle that we all face is, is learning to order our loves. Order and love. if we're taking this book seriously, what we're seeing is there's no way to do that without taking on everything that's possessive about it. It's mine, I want it. Um, or, or, I, or, or <laughs> I want it so much, I am not going to sacrifice anything if it comes to that. W what makes Oriole and Psyche enemies to each other is that moment when Psyche says, I'm glad to go. Um, how does she put it in that chapter when she says, do you think I can really atone or I can, I can do this if I don't give myself to it? Right. She's willing to give herself up, Oriole is not. She wants to have her. So the central tension is image between those two figures. Um, the tension between faith and reason, or belief. You know that Psyche Oriole is, her education consists of what she's learned from Fox and Bardia. She's learned to develop her reason from Fox. And you know that through the three quarters of the novel, she can't do something that doesn't take the form of an argument that justifies what she's doing. In her mind, everything she's doing is right. She's horrified at everything having to do with belief. Um, and we see failures in both Bardia and the fox. After the palace episode, you remember when she comes back, she doesn't want to tell fox. Fox explains everything away. He uses his reason to make it something that it was. It couldn't be farther from the truth. And yet he's convinced that his explanations account for what happened. Bardia doesn't want to touch it, the issue. After the, the palace collapse, and she, when she appeals to him, he has nothing to say because his faith is unreflective. We can say it's a blind faith. He doesn't want to question things. He thinks to do that is a blasphemy. So in those two teachers, Oriole's stuck. She has no way of getting, having any help to prepare her for what she's going to confront at the castle and later afterwards. The theme of sacrifice that we touched on last week now becomes explicit. Before it's only talked about the, the sacrifices in the house of Unga, the blood, the smells, of the reeking of holiness. In the second section, it's explicit. Psyche is sacrificed. And when Oreo goes, she comes to see not a sister who's been brutalized or violated by vagabonds or criminals. She sees a sister who is more healthy looking than she's ever seen in her life and who's in love with this God. It's the result of the sacrifice that she made when she did. Everything she wanted in that mountain is now come multiplied. It's like the fishes.
It's amplified. It's much greater than she ever realized. And it's something Oriole will not accept. So the theme of sacrifice now comes to the forefront. It actually takes place as an act. Psyche's given up. Oriole goes thinking she's going to find the body and bury it or save her. What she finds instead is this figure of health and love and happiness, delight, everything that's associated with being present with a god. Reading. <laughs> it's been <laughs> since the beginning. We don't read well. How well does Psyche, re how well does Oriole read? You know that she misreads everything. Um, she uses her mind to turn everything to fit herself. And even after she sees the palace, she won't admit that it's there. She uses her mind to explain it away. So we're seeing the way the, the rational intellect can um, do away with mystery, explain it away. Um, and the final theme, after Oriole sees the castle and goes, or, or, and then returns to try to persuade Psyche to, to test out her belief, to take the light and look at the god, and you know what happens. I mean, the, we get a picture of the castle um, crumbling, and she goes back home. Um, whatever, what she tells Fox and Oriole is only half the story. So she's living the rest of her life in half lies. There's a whole part of her life that she won't admit because to admit it means she's wrong and she doesn't want to admit that she's wrong. That's what we're left with. When that moment occurs in the book, Oriole enters her darkness. And I'm using that word for those of you who've been here before because it's the word that, remember, describes the tragic hero, Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, Macbeth, Othello, it doesn't matter. The tragic hero always separates himself from others he enters a darkness on his own. Now, most people talk about tragedy as if it's a bad thing. You know, that's not my reading of tragedy. They enter a darkness and they bear a burden other people don't bear. They see things other people don't, and it isolates them from them. So there's a tragic nobility to these people. So it's easy to condemn Oriole, a selfish person. I mean, it's easy to write her off. Lewis doesn't do that. I mean, she's an extraordinary figure. She's wounded, she's hurt, she's got a lot of courage. Um, it's awful what she does with her mind. But you, if you've read, I'm not going to go there, but you, you, you know that it's not going to stay there. But at least at this point in the story, she enters her darkness. It's then that she goes into hiding. She puts on the veil. Her father will die, she will become a queen, and she will do extraordinary things as a queen. But it's at the cost of denying something inside herself. And one of the constant images, interestingly, that the motif that comes into play during that period of darkness is that image of the weeping. She constant, no matter, even when she tries to put up walls to keep the sound out, over and over and over again, she's disturbed when something happens because she hears this weeping. And whenever she goes out, it's always associated with chains. And what a perfect image because it, it, it's a, it's a, it's not only, it not only calls to mind that Psyche was put in chains, Psyche was released from them. Seems to me one of the questions we have is how much Oriole herself has become chained. That she herself is there because she has not given herself up. She's not sacrificed herself. So those are, those are some of the major themes. 
I want to just point out one thing. We'll, we'll probably look at it in the time we've got because I want to. I want to read. I want to read a couple of those passages. After she comes back from her first visit and she's um, fighting with herself, debating whether or not she, what she saw was true or not, she says this line. This is on page one seventy one. You don't have to go there, but she says, "If only they'd give me a sign." And you know, I want to stop for a minute. I want to get outside of the book for just a second. If only they'd give me a sign. It came up in the reading a couple of days ago in the Mass. Um, and you know that the disciples were always, after the, 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 the multiplication of the fish and at other moments, Christ actually gets stern with the disciples when they were saying they wanted a sign. And he, and he said, I gave you the sign of Jonah. Or, do you remember? What, so Lewis is using this phrase, and it's an echo of that that passage in the Bible with the disciples and the other people, all the Jews constantly wanted signs. What does it mean for a person to say, if only they'd give me a sign? The disciples said that to Christ. Give me a sign. What do we understand to be happening at that moment? It's a battle between faith and reason. Flesh it out. Fred, can you? Well, I think when you, when, you, when you say, I need a sign, you haven't quite as she has, you haven't quite got to that point where you can believe just because of the faith you have and, and what it is. You need some kind of proof or indication that what you think might be true really is true. I mean, that was part of what Oriel was fighting with when she was with the Psyche at the castle, right? She kept looking for that sign. And even when she saw it, even for a flicker of a moment, yeah. She didn't have enough faith to take it in front of it. Take that a step further. What does that do? Let, let's say that faith and reason, and faith opens on what from our perspective is the miraculous, the wonderful, this divine world, whatever it is. I mean, Psyche's living it, even if Oriel doesn't see it when she comes to her and she gives her the, the, the berries and the wine. You know, the, um, when you say, if you, show me a sign, give me a sign, what does that do to that world of the wonderful, the miraculous, the divine, whatever we're going to call it? It's a challenge. It takes faith out of it, doesn't it? Yeah, and doesn't it bring that world down to our own level? It, it can never be anything but reductive. It may satisfy us in our own ego. Show me a sign. It, it wants to, the divine world to be accommodated to us. It'll always bring it down. So the, 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 the danger is to, to make it, to put it on a level with reason and make it less than it is, to, to diminish it in some way so that, we can, so that we can be comforted when the whole call of Christ is you know, to, to, to move out of that into that world of mystery, the wonderful, the miraculous. The... So when she said... Sometimes you don't recognize the sign even if it's right there. Right. Which is what happens in the... Go ahead, or so go ahead. I don't want to say, what I'm thinking is that this, isn't this what we go through all the time? I mean, it's not even whether we overtly ask for a sign, but we, we're seeking something, and we always think it's... We're seeking, we don't get what it is we are really missing or seeking. Yeah. And so we... I mean, I, I thought Oriel tried. She'd get glimpses of this every once in a while, not mm -hmm. just... The castle, but she yeah. had. Yeah. There were times where even in her reasoning, she was close. Yeah. <laughs> she never got there, 
Yeah, I, yet. I, I, it's, it's, to me it's sort of a little, it's almost heartbreaking. There are times when she's writing, when she says something to the effect that to try to be honest to something, you know that there's something in her wanting to be just, but she doesn't have the means or any help to get beyond it, so she's stuck. But isn't that us? Yeah, well, yeah, that's why, I mean, I, I, yeah, yes, all of us, yeah. Anyway, I think you're, yeah, you're right on. There are those constantly through it, or occasionally through it, we get these glimpses of her really trying to have an integrity about the way she deals with it, and yet, you know, so much of what goes on shows the, the, the weight of this possessive love and the way it gets in the way of her going on. So in that sense, it seems to me the drama of the story is really true, faithful to the human struggle. I mean, the way exactly what, what you guys are describing. We saw her try. When she, <laughs> when she reflect back on how happy Psyche was when she yeah. saw her, and she actually asked the fox about that. Yeah. And he totally explains it away. Yeah, right. So she she lost the moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to ask this, but a good thing to I mean a good question to keep in mind is is it, in this story, Lewis is one of the great apologists of the 20th century, and and the basis of his apologies are reason, mere Christianity, problem and pain. I, you know, you asked me earlier, they're rational arguments in support of the faith. He doesn't deal with miracles. Really, they're rational arguments to show there's this great source of rationality at the heart of our faith. But they're reasoned. What's his attitude towards reason in this book? <laughs> Doesn't think a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing. No, it's only dangerous if you use it by itself. Didn't you just admit that this is our struggle every day? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you throw reason out. I'm not, no, I'm not saying that. Illuminate. Alone. I'm saying if you look at the book and you watch the way people use reason, I mean it's a... Okay, explain something to me because I'm missing something. At the very beginning when she goes and finds her and she's sitting on this rock and Psyche's like, hey, check out my house. And she's like, I'm sitting on a rock. Hey, take the cup. Uh, it's your hands full of water. So Psyche's off in La La Land right there. Or, or Rory or Lori who is. I mean the question is, what is reality then? Sorry? Sorry? Yes. So explain to me how that reality isn't real. That's her reason going, okay, something's going on here. And now she's got to grasp with whatever La La Land is going on. And I mean, because she's, she's sitting there trying to believe something. And Psyche's Oreo. trying to convince, yes, and Psyche's trying to convince her how great all this is. And she's holding up her hands full of water saying it's a cup. So she's like, okay, she's lost it. Well, let me ask you guys. So, that, 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 is, yeah. that is her trying to grasp something. Right. But the only thing she sees is a chick who's lost it. Yeah. I mean, is, is that an accurate description to say La La Land or, hold on, what's the evidence, I want, want to turn this over, what's the evidence that there's more present than what Oreo sees with her senses? Because we know late, so, when, when Psyche welcomes her first, she offers her berries and then water and, and describes them as cakes of honey and fruit and later wine. What's the evidence that there's something there so that we cannot say of Psyche, this is La La Land? What's the evidence that there's something more there? Her well-being. Yeah. 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 
I mean, every and 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 more more than that. Afterwards, I mean, that's the most obvious thing there. But the thing later is that she actually sees the castle, and what she sees is this extraordinary thing. So it's just it it's not an accurate reading to say, Psyche's in La La Land. What we say is there's something in Oriole that is real because she lives in her body and is responding by what she sees with her senses. But there's also things available to her senses that make it impossible for us to write that off. Not only her readiness and her health and the bloom. Remember, she, she was put in a gibbet, a chained there and left there. And everything about her shows this extraordinary health and a beauty that she didn't, even though she's always been beautiful. Probably and, and not from berries and water. Huh? Probably not from berries and water. <laughs> right, right, good. <laughs> Sue, go ahead. I, I think I'm the only person that may not be true in the evening class and bullets. I can't understand what you're saying when you as a Catholic believe what you do about Eucharist. Because this is a pagan book about pagan gods. It's pure fantasy. Well, but it's <laughs> wait, hold on, hold on. Just stop there. Is, wait, can, so, 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 is this a pagan book? Why? What's your answer to Mark on this? To the sacred. Sorry? I think it's an allegory of the sacred. Right. So it's not a pagan book to me. Wait, sorry? Surface mark. You're always on the surface. Well, go a little deeper. Okay, go a little deeper. Psyche and Cupid. It's a pagan book about rolling guns. No, wait. Hold on. Hold on. It is. Hold on. Hold on. Wait. Wait. I just. I just said. He's using. He's using a pagan myth, the psychic myth, the, the myth about the sisters. But he's also. Hold on to it. I mean, wait, because we've got to get to an end. At this point, we're at, we're on the surface of it in a pagan world, and he's dealing with a pagan myth. But the question that I'm raising, that I'm at least asking everybody to consider, is is what he's talking about to be understood in, in purely pagan terms or in these terms? And I, right now, Mark, if you've not read, then I'd ask you to just wait. Okay, because we know at the end we're not dealing with just a possessive love. We're dealing with a love that was self-sacrificial and that was divine and human, and it has another aspect to it. So what we're watching on the surface is a conflict between these two parts of the soul that can't be adequately explained just in pagan terms because there's nothing in paganism that gets us here and let me stop here because I want to go to the book because we're almost out of time there is a tension at the heart of this book between two kinds of love one is self-directed towards the self and the other is towards something obscure and difficult um, that we get in glimpses um, but that, that Lewis makes us clear is beyond what Fox can explain through the use of his mind or Bardia okay um, I want to we don't have much time so let me let me quickly go to the um, the two chapters I want to um, I want to look just quickly at um, Sorry. On in chapter ten, on page somewhere around one twenty-nine. Remember, she comes here not knowing what she's going to find. But I think, every, I hope everybody's clear by now that there's a possessiveness in her that's 
Oh, by the way, I wanted to, I wanted just to flesh this out. Remember, we Homer, um, Calypso, Circe. Um, if we wanted a Virgil, we'd find a figure like that as well, Amata and some other figures. But if we came up into modern times, we've seen that ourselves in some moderns. Remember Mrs. May in the O'Connor book when she said, it's mine. It's my, she did not want to give that up. She'd worked her life for it. Her hold was possessed. She did not want anything to intrude. Not the light, not God, not grace. Leona, remember in the barbershop when the other woman got the money, she was offended that she didn't get it. So over and over and over again, we've seen figures, these feminine figures, whose basic responsiveness is this possessiveness, to not let go, um, to make this sacrifice. Now, now Lewis is um, giving us a story that deals fundamentally with this thing. She arrives, she's taken into the castle, um, and Oriol, or Psyche tells her story on 126. Remember, she was put in the chains. The animals came up to look at her, and they didn't hurt her. And remember, um, um, for Oriol to get to Psyche's palace, she had to cross a stream. So once again, that stream marks a, it's a, it's a threshold moment to make us aware. We've left one world, and we've entered another, the sacred. So or, Psyche is now describing what happened um, when the west wind came and she saw a he in it. Now, to a scientist, it's a, the wind is only a property of its elements, material elements. To the pagans, or, or even to a Christian, we believe there's something more behind them that, that our senses can't see. She describes the west wind coming together. 126. Um, the wind got wilder and wilder. It seemed to be lifting me off the ground so that if it hadn't been for the iron round my waist, I'd have been blown right away up to the air, and then at last for a moment I saw him, saw whom? The west wind saw it, not it, him, the god of the west wind, west wind himself. That it, you know, we've talked midwinter, midwinter, midwinter spring. We, we have been talking about these moments of something time, in time and out of time. The presence of this thing, do we see it? Lewis is in that same category of things, showing us here's a wind, what we take to be a wind. Psyche's describing it as something involving more. This is the god of the wind. This is what's behind the wind. So we're not in a materialist world anymore. We're not in Fox's world. Were you awake, Psyche? Oh, it was a dream. What's Oreo's response? You gotta be dreaming. Is everybody following? Reason is at work here. It can't make a place. This is beyond the senses, um, what she's describing. Um, how can I make you understand? You've seen lepers? Well, of course. What we're getting is a debate, an exchange of reason. You've seen lepers. Are you following? This is, Lewis, a debate. You've seen lepers? Well, of course. And you know how healthy people look beside a leper? You mean healthier, ruddier than ever? Yes, now we beside the gods are like leopards besides us. Do you mean this god was so red? She laughed and clapped her hands. Oh, it's no use, she said. I see I'm not giving you the idea at all. Never mind, you shall see the gods for yourself. Go down. Somehow, there must be a way. Look, this may help you. When I saw the west wind, I was neither glad nor afraid at first. I felt ashamed. Notice it's not guilty. It's ashamed because you'll go on to say, it's like you're insufficient. You feel in the presence of something like you, we're made in his image, 
and yet so much greater than what we are. But what of it, Psyche? They haven't stripped you naked or anything. <laughs> where's, where's her blanket? No, no, my ashamed of looking like a mortal. Ashamed of being mortal. But how could you help that? Don't, don't you think the things people are most ashamed of are things they can't help? I thought of my ugliness and said nothing. Remember, he takes her up to the castle. She's received by these maid spirits, and she's welcome, fed, and clothed. And then um, she's presented to the bridegroom that night. Um, and it's interesting that so often when Oreo responds, her, her most violent responses are in response to the use of he, the idea that she would be married to a man. I mean, Oreo, she doesn't like the word virgin. She's really offended by that one uh, when Psyche used it. Bottom 130. You could see the hands were doing it, and Oreo grew very low. When I took the cup, I felt the other hands touching my own. Again, that burning, though without pain, that was terrible. She blessed. Go down, oh my, you still don't understand. The shame has nothing to do with it, he or she. It's not sexual. It's the being mortal, being, how shall I say it, insufficient. Don't you think a dream would feel shy if it were seen walking about in the waking world? And then she was speaking more and more quickly now. They dressed me again in those beautiful things, and then came the banquet and the music, and then they had me to bed <coughs> in the night. So at this point, if we're reading closely, we know whatever assumptions we have about the fact that she was there alone, she's in a better place, because if she had been here alone, she would be thin and starved, emaciated, but everything about her shows the fullness of life that can't be explained just the way Oreo will do it. Psyche has said, I can't bear it any longer. You've told me so many wonders. If this is all true, I've been wrong all my life. It's the one thing she won't admit. Now, I want to I stop. You know that they go back. <coughs> she won't tell everything. I want to go forward quick to the, um, to the point where um, she comes back this time to try to force um, Psyche to return with her. <coughs> um, where's one line? One eighty seven, somewhere in there. Um, you remember what? Oriole does, um, she tries to persuade her, she tries to force her physically, she gets angry at her, says, listen to me, obey me, um, and then she takes out her knife to wound her, um, to show that she will um, even take her own life if it means she has to do that in order to get Psyche to leave. It's at that point that Psyche herself gets very angry at Oriole. I, if we had time, I'd, I would ask, what's the difference between the two angers, because they're both angry, um, what's the difference between them? We, we can't, but she, um, she dares Psyche, um, saying that she won't do it. Um, um, when Psyche said that the God forbid her on 184, um, Oriole's offended at the thought that Psyche would do something in obedience to what this, whoever this, this creature of God, um, bottom 184, oh, Oreo, what evil you think? The reason I cannot look at him, least of all, by such trickery as you would have me do, is that he has forbidden me. 
I can think, Barty and the fox can think of one reason only for such a forbidding and of one only for you obeying it, then you know little of love. You fling my virginity in my face again, do you? Better it be that than the sty you're in. She has no idea that it's there, but she's assuming it. Um, she forces her to do it, you know, and it's at that point that um, Psyche says to her, almost as an enemy now, um, you have chosen, you have to go on with your life. She's going to do it, even though it means losing what she has with this god, and in, in an irony is losing what she has with her sister, um, because she knows that their life won't be the same. Um, Psyche returns, I mean, Oreo returns to her place outside, and she looks for the, the light, remember? And, um, and then on page, um, page 194, 195, she sees the light, and then um, suddenly there's this great voice on 194. This is, this is really, in a sense, the, the crisis of the, or, or the first crisis of the, of the book. The great voice which rose up from somewhere close to the light went through my whole body in such a swift wave of terror that it blotted out even the pain in my arm. It was no ugly sound. Even in its implacable sternness, it was golden. My terror was the salute that mortal flesh gives to immortal things. And after, barely after the strong soaring of its incomprehensible speech came the sound of weeping. That's the beginning of Psyche's exile. We will hear that weeping for the rest of the book. It's at that point that she sees the, she sees the castle crumbling. Okay, she sees it visibly. And the evidence of it is in the river. The trees and the rocks are there, it sets up a torrent. Um, and then suddenly this light appears to stand over her on page 195 at the bottom. Um, there came as if it were a lightning that endured, that is the look of it was the look of lightning, pale, dazzling, without warmth or comfort, showing each smallest thing with fierce distinctness, but it did not go away. The great light stood over me as still as a candle, go down. This is, to me, this is one of the most extraordinary lines I've ever read in literature. It appears to her, and she, she can't bear looking at it any longer. It's too difficult to look at. And then Lewis has this line. A monster, the shadow brute that I and all Gloam had imagined, would have subdued me less than the beauty this face wore. What an extraordinary... Take the most terrifying thing in the world and say that that, that thing terrified you less than the terror you felt at looking at God. That she would be, um, the, the, a monster would subdue her less than the beauty of that face. So we're looking at divine beauty. What in the church has always been called the numinous, the dreadful, the wonderful, the, the dread, the mystery, because it is so extraordinary. Um, would have subdued me less than the beauty, thing, and, I th and I think anger would have been more supportable. God than the passionless and measureless rejection with which he looked upon me. The, um, the figure comes to her again, and, he, and she says again at the top of 197, there was great silence when the God spoke to me, and as there was no anger in his face, so there was none in his voice. It was unmoved and sweet, like a bird singing on the branch above a hanged man. What we're seeing is God in his wholeness, in his love, 
It's, un it's unmoved, it's complete. Now Psyche goes out in exile. Now she must hunger and thirst and tread hard road. Those against whom I cannot fight must do their will upon her. You woman shall know yourself and your work. That's the, f there are two, two things. He's, one is you will know yourself and your work. And the other, you also shall be Psyche. The voice <coughs> stops and then she hears um, the weeping again. And she's left with this question, what does it mean that she will... Now, first thought is, <laughs> in a, I'm going to call it spite, that in a very heroic way, she, she knows that she's done something wrong. She knows she's the cause of it. She says she will be willing to go into exile. She, 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 she said, I, I will make a good handmaiden, and I will be a good fighter. So she's toughening herself to do this, but but she's not close to the sacrifice and she does not, she has not at this point admitted to herself that it's there. All the evidence is there. She just witnesses, she heard the God, she's seen the, she's seen the palace. What she will do when she goes back to Gloam is she will, she will not tell Fox or Bardia all that happened. So from this point to the end of the book, or towards the end, she will live in half lives. Her reason will be put at the service her reason will be put at the service of something else. But she's living a life. She's entering the darkness. She's got an experience of God behind her. This conflict between possessive love and um, self-sacrificing love will be the condition in which she lives. Um, she will put on a mask. Um, she goes into hiding. She lives in guilt. And, and you know that she's actually pleased, when, somewhat pleased when her father dies, and then she will take over the... Let me stop here. Where we're going next week is everything that's going to happen to her that will, that will unmask her. Um, and uh, and what, hap what happens in order for that to take place? But let me stop. Any questions or comments about where we are? It's all ahead of us. I mean, it's all pointing towards next week. There's, but any questions about where we are here or the nature, the, the nature of the conflict, the importance of reason and faith, what reason is doing I, I, don't, I, I want to hit this home. Sorry, I know it's late. Lewis's view of reason here is not very good. That's one way to put it. The other way to put it is we see how powerful self-love is. That there's, all, there's very little that a person can say that isn't out of a motive of self-justifying, self blaming, pointing, excusing, covering up. That... that um, until what we're seeing, until a person gives up his life or her life, reason tends to get used against that moment. That, that moment when you have to give up everything and accept all the things you don't understand. So you can either say that reason is really bad, or we can say it, it's so weak in the face of how powerful this possessive love is. That so much of what the human person does is, I don't even put it, so much of what the human person does is, um, what we're seeing is um, how, how much a human being denies God in the face of having to give up something here. When I was reading those passages, when, the, when um, she forced Psyche to, to take the light, or even before when she was trying to force her, 
it was hard for me to watch these scenes without, without seeing Christ in, um, in Pilate's presence. When you watch Pilate and Herod use their minds to escape what would have been a sacrifice for them, how human is that on a daily basis? How, how much as humans do we use reason to avoid giving up our lives, to hold on to the things that are tangible, secure, right? Our life, our life, yeah, okay. It's all ahead of us. The best part is yet to come. Well, the only, my only thing is that when I read it, it was the night, I thought of the night that I was coming, going to church, and said, go to St. Francis, you're oh, yeah, And that just, because I fought. Right. right. I fought. Driving over here, at that time, I was arguing with myself that I hear a voice, was it in my head? Was it really right. in the car right. or not? Right. And right. then when I got here, yes, there in the parking lot, there was a problem. And it was just, it just unbelievable. Yes, 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 yes. What can you say except yes? That's a gift I'm about to be here next week. That's not a gift.